Well, I am delighted to welcome Theragun Gen 4. Things are stressful right now, right? And uh, by the way, you can't necessarily just go out and get a massage. All these things are closed in some states. That's why I'm so delighted to bring Theragun to you guys. I love this handheld percussive therapy device. It, I, if to, I'm sorry, but it does a better job than massage therapists. I, no, no disrespect to massage therapists. They're great. They're wonderful. They're professionals. I'll be damned if I don't get more out of this scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, power, and quiet now. This is all new Gen 4 Theragun. It's a proprietary brushless motor. It's so quiet. My dogs used to freak. I, I like these devices, and my dog would always freak out when I would use it on myself. Now, this one, he doesn't even notice I'm using it. And by the way, there's a smaller version, too, that I bring when I travel. I literally bring it around with me. I can't be without this stuff. So trust me, you'll be happy with Theragun. It is an excellent device. Try Theragun risk-free for 30 days. There is no substitute for Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need. Starting at only $199, go to Theragun, T-H-E-R-A-G-U-N, Theragun.com slash Drew. Go right now. Get your Gen 4 Theragun today. You will thank me. That is Theragun.com slash D-R-E-W, not Dr. Drew, just Drew. Theragun.com slash Drew. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, be sure to keep the wind and the sail of the Corolla Pirate Ships. Of course, support the people that support us here as we keep doing this thing. And if you don't mind, swing by drdrew.com. Check out the family of pods there. And also, we do a stream. If you sign up at drdrew.tv or check out Facebook slash Dr. Drew or YouTube Dr. Drew, um, we're in there trying to make sense of the information that's out there that's, uh, frankly, I'm not even sure it's information anymore. It's not even data. I'm not sure what to call it, but we try to make sense of it together. And sometimes we'll take calls. Uh, keep an eye out for that. But uh, don't forget After Dark. It's over there at drdrew.com or at your mom's house if that's what you're uh, a fan of. Welcoming today, Dr. Deepika Chopra. Uh, the podcast is Looking Up with Dr. Deepika Chopra. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Chopra? Chopra. Chopra. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, available anywhere you get your podcast, you can go to her website, D-R-D-E-E-P-I-K-A, and the Chopra is C-H-O-P-R-A, so drdeepakashopra.com. Twitter and Instagram handle, the same, at Chopra. And then uh, Optimism Doctors. Let's start with that, if you don't mind, because that's kind of the direction I wanted to go. What is that all about? Yeah, fair enough. Um, first of all, I have to just say I am a huge fan because I grew up listening to Loveline religiously every single night. I had a little radio like in my bed. I was supposed to be in sleeping, but of course I was listening to you and Adam Corolla. I, and- I, I, I apologize. <laughs> let, me, let me apologize first. I learned a lot. Good. because There was a, certainly a lot of human uh, nature on display. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, fair enough. Um, I feel like the first question that's always asked of me is what is an optimism doctor? Um, I'm, so gl- I'm glad, I'm glad I start where they all start. Good times. Yes. Uh, I have a doctorate in clinical health psychology, but I've been studying the science and the holistic side, but the science behind optimism and resiliency and joy for over the past decade now. And really the optimism doctor part came about because, um, uh, a number of years back, I was working with a client and I have this whole spiel of how I practice really differently. And what we're doing here is really looking at your optimism factor and focusing on the things that are going well and that you want. And um, 
and less sort of about just what's not going well and um, what you don't want out of life. Although we do talk about that as well. And he was sort of just like, after 20 minutes of me explaining, because I know I'm good at some things and I know what I'm not good at and I'm not good at being concise. And he was like, so you're basically a doctor of optimism. And I was like, yeah, that's actually what I am. I'm an optimism doctor. And so I trademarked it. And um, so people always wonder what an optimism doctor is. And it's a fair question because essentially it was what I've been doing for the past decade or so, and it didn't really exist. And so I made it exist. How does it differ from Seligman and positive psychology? So Martin Seligman, father of positive psychology, amazing. Um, He is definitely someone that in my grad school, um, postdoc fellowship, all of that, I um, learned so much from his research and um, respect him so much. So much of it is built on on the study of positive psychology. I really focus on um, future-directed thinking and um, different ways and tools in which we can help people to have more positive future thoughts. And so some of those tools might be, um, you know, I get more specific into like visual imagery and visualization and the power of expectation um, over just sort of like knowing what you want. It's really um, deciphering like what you actually expect to happen. Okay. So there, there's actually a, a ton in what you're saying there. So I, I, I don't want to get granular at first and talk about some of the specifics, but I want to back away and ask you what you have learned about the human brain and the human yeah. psyche having dealt with a lot of this now. And let me frame it by saying that we are meaning-making machines, uh, and in a sense, we sort of make our own – our brain is designed to sort of anticipate the future. That's really sort of what right. it was. our brain does a lot of. Right. A- and as such, we can kind of make the future to a certain extent. I'm not saying that you're the total uh, uh, author of your destiny, but it's remarkable how much we can yes. do. And I, I wonder how much – you know, maybe you should tell me some stories where it's been sort of uncanny or what you're sort of – instincts are about this quality of our brain. Absolutely. So that's actually exactly what you're saying. Um, When I was doing all my research and when I was in grad school, I couldn't figure out why so many of the theoretical perspectives that I was sort of learning were path-driven. And in all the neuro research, I, I was always more interested in that in the brain. I kept coming into and realizing and learning that the brain is an anticipatory organ and um, pretty much everything that the brain does is in future tense, whether that's a few seconds from now or minutes from now. In, or, in, including you know, some weeks. people theorizing that memory is, in fact, some, some distorted version of future, right. trans, you know, uh, future anticipations. Right. And yeah. even so, for example, you know, what you see, um, you know, your brain tells you what you see faster than your visual cortex actually, quote unquote, sees it. Or even if you think about eating uh, a donut, for example, you think about eating it, your brain already knows to, to uh, release the right amount of insulin to break it down before you actually even eat it. And so, what's even weirder is your statement about thinking about a donut, your brain fired off that thought, well, fired off the mechanisms that led to that thought well before you had the thought. Exactly. Which is craziness. Exactly. Which it's is what's crazy. weird. Yeah, it's crazy. Yes, yeah. it's so crazy. And I like basically, for lack of a better term, nerded out about this. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited about it. And I started to realize, well, 
you know, we were just at that point starting to sort of bring in a lot of the present tense into our theoretical practices, so like mindfulness and the present moment, which is also a huge part. Um, I, I would argue, that, though, that, that you caught my attention with that, but present moment stuff is different, right? I mean, that's, yeah, it's, that, different. it's psychotherapeutic. Yes. It's all good things, but it's different than what yes. we're talking about here. So go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So then yeah. I was, I, that was sort of happening. Um, it was new at the time. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, about a decade ago. It was sort of working its way into sort of the, you know, theoretical perspective and actually like in your schools, in grad school, in, in psych, your PhD. You you were at UCLA. Is that where you were? So I did. Yeah. I did a double postdoc fellowship at UCLA and Cedars. Um, And and let me just say, are you in Florence, Italy or something right now? That room behind you is, is, it's got a coffered uh, ceiling and there's like crafted doors. Gary, look at this room. Just take a look. This is why I I didn't want to be on video. (laughs) Um, we're actually, uh, I'm also a parent and yeah. I have a three-year-old and another one on the way. And we have, we've had no childcare since the start of the pandemic. And my husband and I both work full time. So we're at my parents' house ah. and, um, and, they, and they live in Florence, very, Italy. Yeah, they live in Florence, Italy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They live in Florence, Italy, um, by way of, uh, a little beach town in the South Bay right, of, of Los Angeles. Well, I was going to say, but even from Manhattan Beach, that's an extraordinary, <laughs> that's an extraordinary I know. room. I know. <laughs> well, it's very transporting when you can't go to Italy. You just, yeah, there it is. I mean, wow. Uh, ceiling's a little low for Italy. It's the only thing I'd say. A little bit lower than actually Italy, but otherwise I, I, I was transported by the image behind you. Anyway, so so future po- so, uh, future forecasting with the brain. Just yes, keep going there. Yes. So and, and, but I would, I'm, I'm interested in – and take me to and, – and again, I don't want you to shortcut it necessarily, but I'm, what I'm sort of aiming toward is there's a lot of uh, – I don't have a full clear thought on this yet, but the people are becoming aware that they create their own destiny. Let's put it that right. way. And, and, and then, and, but reality. that right, and but how that happens is awfully complicated. So go, right. so go. So yes, I um, was really interested in um, well, if our brains are always working in future tense, then you know how can we actually get in there and do the real work to help people have more. Um, future thoughts that they wanted to have or that felt good. And so um, basically that kind of led me to, at that time, a lot of the work um, surrounding that thought process was in actually sports psychology. And a lot of that was in visual imagery. And the only thing you could really find at that time was was in sports psychology. So um, I sort of was taking from the research that was done in sports psychology and utilizing it on my patients at UCLA, which ranged from and cedars, which ranged from, um, you know, really straight, straightforward textbook, if you'd say, even though I don't think saying any human is textbook is, is okay, but um, mental health um, sort of directed cases. But also, I was a psycho-oncologist at UCLA for a number of years. And so I was working with oncology patients and particularly using visual imagery uh, for anticipatory anxiety right before going into surgery. And so every um, woman that was at seen at the Revlon breast clinic and was going into surgery at that time. And I was a fellow, I got to see them for a visual imagery um, before surgery. And it was just, it was incredible. And and I I had a lot of amazing supervision and people that believed in, Hey, if you want to do something a little bit different, we trust you, you can use our patient population. And and it, it sort of furthered my interest. But what I really want to say about um, this idea of 
you know, creating your own reality and, um, you know, choosing your thoughts and, and sort of, like you said, writing your own destiny. Um, it's a lot more complicated, obviously, than that. And this is very different than um, sort of the notion out there that you can just ask the universe for something right. and yes. that's yeah, going to drop that right. into your lap. Right. That's the part I want us to avoid and, yeah. and bring this to reality. So I really, at the time, it was so so long ago now where I feel like what I was really working on, this idea of, I called evidence-based manifestation, and, and which is the, now and while, funny. I'm, while I'm thinking of it at, at Cedars, did you know Jenna Kravitz, ne- neuropsychologist over there? I didn't. Okay. I was at. Uh, I didn't. I was my la- my fellowship was the last year that Thalians was open. Got it. And so the, the psych so I must there. have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So it's very different than that. Of course, I'm not knocking anything on the you know spiritual side or the law of attraction. I, I totally you know the reason I even was interested to study this is because a girlfriend's mom of mine in high school introduced me to the law of attraction and and you know. Um, this whole concept and I was starting to kind of use it, but I've always been someone that wanted to know why and the messaging of it, of how it came about was not, I just was like, but how does it work? Right. How does it work? Right. Practically. Show me the basis. So, yeah. yeah. So I think I, I essentially used my time in grad school trying to just prove to myself, like if you're going to use this and it, and it like you actually are going to accept it, you need to find out like from a scientific way what's going on. So, um, I really like that brought me into many people focus on this idea within the sort of, you know, I live in LA. So over the last five years, you can't go walk down the street without someone saying manifestation or the M word. <laughs> and it sort of now is this big, like eye rolly thing, which yeah. I agree with, um, because it kind of has this weird sense of like, you can just sit on, you know, Venice beach. And like I said, look up, ask the universe for something. And it's going to drop right into your lap. Yeah. And um, no, it takes so much more work than that. And it really is about um, a mindset shift and a real shift in like cognitive training it takes work. It is, you know, dispelling years and years and years of doing something that your brain has already created sort of an autopilot pathway to do it more efficiently. So think about if you've been doing something for 30 plus 40 plus years, and now all of a sudden you want to change the way you're doing it. It is possible, but it obviously takes hard work and practice. Well, yeah, but let's 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 talk about that for a second because I think I think the sort of the weird uh, folk wisdom is that oh, you just have insight into it and you decide to change and that's all there is to it, or or you know you'll just uh, focus on it and it will happen and you know it's yeah right. I, 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 half of the problem is even seeing what the pathways are. They don't even see right. what the the cycles are people are in. So for me, like what I really focus on is, sure, I think it's wonderful and really beneficial and effective to know what you want. But I think a lot of people stop there and they say, well, I really wanted it. I imagined it. I made a vision board. So why didn't it happen? Right. And I think the missing point is you, you, are, you don't always get what you want, but you most always get what you expect. And that's how the brain works. Dr- so drill that missing- down. To, to tease that apart for me. What okay. do you mean by that? So, the, so you could want something like, for example, uh, I could ask you, do you want to win the lottery? And you could yeah. be like, yeah, of course I want to win the lottery. Right. I absolutely want to win the lottery. Okay, great. 10 out of 10, you want to win the lottery. Did you buy a lotto ticket today? Probably not. Did you buy one yesterday? Probably not. Why not? Do you expect that you could win? No. Rate it. Probably two out of 10, I'll win. 
our brains don't go forth with putting the energy into creating pathways and problem solving to um, to sort of work on goals or anything unless we actually believe that it's something that could happen. Because listen, our brains have a lot to do and our brains are efficient. If our brain is like, that could never happen, I'm not putting the you know, problem solving part of my brain, the executive functioning is not going to turn on to start making you do actual things or come up with actual ideas to make things work. So the the secret, the real secret, if you want to say, or it's not a secret, is really about closing that gap between what you want and what you expect. And so the work is on the expectation. You can't just stop and say, I really want this relationship. I want it so badly. I would love to have this relationship. You have to then ask yourself, but how how much out of one to 10, I, I love to measure everything, do you actually expect that you can have this relationship? And if you're at a three and your wants at an eight or nine, you have to bridge that gap. And the real work isn't about just continuing wanting that relationship and asking some arbitrary force to put it in your lap. It's like, how can I change? And why do I have this expectation that I don't deserve it or I'm not going to get it? And you know, how can I change the actual expectation for that? So I have two questions. One, are there circumstances where you should diminish the wanting? And how do you change those expectations? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't believe that. I think that, um, if you want something and something will make, bring you joy or whether it's an actual material thing, which I try to not focus on, it's more about what would this relationship bring to you? Why do you want it? Knowing the why behind it and the motivation for it, um, and focusing more on that feeling. Um, I don't think you need to diminish that feeling of what it is that you would like to add into your life. But I do think that I would rather someone take the time and work to focus on, you know, bridging that gap and raising the expectation than just continuously focusing on the want. Because sometimes the expectation is I have that. Sometimes the want is because I have an expectation that satisfying that want is going to have some magical. Right. 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 Absolutely. So like first thing first is sort of why do you want the want? Right. right and what right. will it bring so you? Do, you do look at it when at you go that work. Right. You look oh, of at course. it. Yeah. And, I, and, and sometimes we realize when we do that work, like maybe you don't actually want that. And it wasn't even you thought this material thing that you wanted um, was going to bring you this specific feeling or um, joy or happiness in your life. But actually it comes from somewhere else. Mm. Um, and it's not about that. So I think that when we work on expectations, for example, um, and this is where visual imagery comes in as well, um, when you work on a really great way to raise expectations and the belief that something can happen is actually to, to be able to authentically visualize it. Again, this is not about um, just imagining something because someone told you to, but you really don't believe it. It's the same thing. Like I don't, this may be kind of controversial and I've written a lot about it, but I don't believe that blanket statement affirmations are helpful. Oftentimes I think they're detrimental. If you hold a belief that you um, don't love yourself and um, you're not lovable. And then someone, you know, someone tells you to stand in front of a mirror three times when you wake up and before you go to bed and just say, I love myself. I love myself. That's actually has the possibility from a research perspective to actually bring you more harm than good and to do the opposite because our brains are right there. Our brains love being right. They're efficient. You're going to start thinking of the 30 plus years of experience you have in evidence of why that's not true. And then you have shame and guilt and why would I even think this? This is ridiculous. Right. Um, so I'd rather, yeah. so the first part of that is sort of, I'm not here to 
to take a belief that you have and sort of squash it, even if it's not serving you well. Someone comes to me with that belief, that core belief of I don't love myself. I'm there to respect that and say, okay, um, I hear you. You must have had X amount of years to make that so true for yourself. And I hear that you want to change it. But, you know, just saying I love myself is not going to change it. In fact, it's only going to be doing the, the opposite. It's like driving down the highway at 100 miles per hour and then just turning around and you'll crash. So the real work there is I'd rather someone, I'd rather ask someone, you know, what's one thing that you like about yourself or that you enjoy about yourself? And if that person says, I have a great sense of humor, I'm, I'm a loyal friend, or I tell a great story, that's something that I'm like, okay, do you believe that? How much one out of 10? If you're at a seven and above with something that you believe, that is an affirmation I would want them to use. And then over time, if they're saying, I'm a great storyteller, I'm really loyal, I'm a loyal friend in front of a mirror three times a day, uh, then your brain believes it. And the cool thing that happens is right away, your brain starts seeking out other evidence to support that belief. We'll talk about so that. They, what, is, what is that mechanism? So it, you know, in just to, to make it simple, um, Again, our brains, like I said, it likes to make a thought that you have that you believe even truer. So it's the self-fulfilling prophecy what, what, idea. What, from an evolutionary perspective, what is that, do you think? I'm, I mean, uh, I think that from an evolutionary, and, and again, uh, evolutionary psych is not my specialty, but I, I would say that I believe that you might know. Actually, no, no, I don't. I just, it's just whenever there's something happens in biology, yeah. I always want to go, where did that come from? Where did that come what, from? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's back to like our brain has so much to do. There's so much stimuli happening all the time around us. And so we have to, our brain is constantly, um, from an evolutionary perspective, the more it's efficient and sifting through things and saying, this is important. This is not, oh, I've seen this before. So here's a pathway I can just do without actually having to spend enough energy on, more energy on it and sort of go quickly. Um, I think it's protective and it's sort of, it, the more our brain kind of can work in that way, which can be a good thing for us, but also as, as we're talking about can be a bad thing. The whole autopilot thing. It's like when you drive to work every day and not that we're doing that now, but you know, sometimes you get there and you're like, how the hell did I get here? I just, I don't even remember. I just drove, you know what I mean? And so it's that idea that your brain actually didn't, didn't need to do anything to get there. It's done it so many times before that it needed to tend to other things. So I think it's all about that efficiency and sort of protecting the energy because you have to be alert to a new stimuli that might come up and, and you know, be able to, to decipher it as like, is this something friendly? Is this not? Do I need to, you know, what am I seeing here? What am I labeling? What's the action I need to take? Is there a difference between, let's say, again, these affirmations around things that you do believe about yourself between that and wiring that up? And a habit? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think there, there's similarities. So we, when we do things, um, you know, in repetition, we, there, there's habits. And I think there's a huge, um, I like to kind of look at them as rituals. Um, and I think that it, that rituals and creating positive ritualistic habits are a really important way to increase optimism and happiness from a scientific perspective. Um, and I think that, um, there's a huge misconception out there that it takes, you know, a, you know, a specific amount of days to 21 days is what the sort of like, um, I feel like folk, every book folk, that's folk ever, wisdom, yeah. 
Yes. And, and people think, you know, it, it's baffles me because even like colleagues or people that I know are, are really in, I know they're great at what they do, but like every book is like 21 days to blah, blah, blah. But like <laughs> when you really looked it up, like it actually, the day 21 was based on a complete misconception. Right. And it was some like, um, I don't know the exact story by heart, but it was like a plastic surgeon that was getting into psychology. And I think he like based it on a, um, like a, a patient population he was working with within the plastic surgery world and recovery from like a surgery or something. And something got misconstrued with what he said. And all of a sudden it became 21 days. And so it was just some weird actually, anecdote. Some yeah, strange and actually anecdote. The re- some strange yeah. anecdote that yeah. had just taken off. And um, of course, if you do something for 21 days, I'm sure that's, that's a lot better than doing it in 10 days or five days. But the real uh, research was done and actually... Sadly enough, um, it's a lot longer than that, but they say there is no, obviously, like so many things, there's not a specific number of days that's right for every single person, but on average, it's more like 66. 60 days. 66. Yeah. On average, it's more like 66. Um, Gary, you're looking at me. Does that fit your your understanding of habits? No, sorry. I just looked up because she said 66 and you said 60. Okay. Okay. (laughs) His brain was noticing differences there. Yes. He was was on it. Yeah. Um, So really like this idea is, you know, not forgetting what you're actually expecting. So what you believe to be true. And that's where the visual imagery comes up. Listen, there's an example that I always like to give of a patient I worked with many, many years ago. And um, she was extremely overweight and really, really depressed and wanted to make some big changes in her life. And for the most part, you know, sometimes you can work with someone and say, hey, listen, we're going to visualize X, Y, and Z, and they're able to do it. And sometimes you know, you're very paralyzed and very stuck and you can't even actually visualize something that is so out of your um, comfort zone and thought process of what you believe could happen. And so sometimes we have to kind of, um, I don't want to say the word manipulate because it has a bad, a negative connotation, but, but in a positive way, inspire someone to, um, change their belief on what they think can actually happen for their life by using visualization techniques. And so I would ask her, you know, who's the first person you're going to tell when you lose X amount of weight? And she would say, my mom. I said, okay, well, where are you? How did, well, how did you come up with that? How did you come up with that idea? I mean, do you think um, that was something co-created between she and you that, you know what I mean? Sometimes there's things yeah, that pop into our heads that are really from the patients. Right. So I think it was co-created and I had an excellent supervisor um, at, at um, my, the site that I was working at, at Cedars. And I think I had such great supervision that every time, you know, we would talk about our, our patients and what we could do. And, and I was sort of stuck in, you know, I don't even think I can use this technique that I've been using because if I asked her to visualize it, her response would be, I just can't. I can't think of that. Like how, like there's no way. And it almost felt like, it almost felt like cruel to say that because I knew she couldn't and we had tried it. And so I think it was a combination of a co-created experience with the patient, but also great supervision and idea of sort of like, well, why don't you just ask her, um, sort of go through the visualization in a way in which you're breaking it down and, and sort of asking her in little bits and pieces and so then I, you know, I asked her and I said, where are you? And she said, oh, you know, I'm in my mom's closet. What are you wearing? 
What does it smell like? What does it sound like? And then we've created a visualization and her brain has actually seen something. And so what we know about uh, visualization and mirror neurons and the way the brain works is oftentimes our brain doesn't actually know the difference between whether we're visualizing something and whether it's actually happening. So it's the same thing like when you, I don't know, you watch one of those reality shows like Dancing with the Stars or something. And oftentimes if you're really in it and you're watching it, your brain actually doesn't know the difference between you watching or imagining yourself go through steps than you actually doing it. And that's where they use, they use a lot of this in sports psychology. And, and, and when you say so, your, your brain doesn't, you mean parts of your brain? Yes, parts of your yeah, brain. Yeah. 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 And so once, you're, once parts of your brain um, sort of gather the intel or info that they've seen, it's seen, you've seen yourself in a certain way, it's more believable to you that it's actually a possibility. So that first step of working um, with expectation and and sort of breaking down the really, really, really um, hardcore limiting beliefs is, you know, getting yourself to imagine that something is even remotely possible. What happened with that patient? Well, we made a lot of progress and she, um, you know, we worked together for for almost the, the whole year in that program that I was there for that time. And, and she lost weight and she was happier and developed more skills to decrease her anxiety. And, are, are you able to talk and, about this case without uh, ethically? Can we talk about it a little bit? Yeah. It, it also, I, not really as much more than that. Sort right. Of Cause I, I feel it. you, I feel you resisting and I have lots yeah. of questions. So, <laughs> well, let's, yeah. so, so let's talk about it in generalities. I'm, I'm guessing that a bunch of affect emerges as you may have these generalizations. So talk about that. Yeah. Um, you know, the main, the main, purpose and, and if you can, if there are any cases, the more, you know, you know, I know how people, for you and I, this is great, but for other people that are listening to yeah. us, the more you can ground it in a case or a story or, you know, if you're able to. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, so the whole purpose of this obviously is it is all about affect and it's about emotion and feelings. So when I say, when we say affect, we're talking about how you feel. Um, and, Oftentimes, again, people think that what they really want is something material or something physical. But in the end, it, you know, for, for this particular patient, it was more about feeling a sense of self-mastery and feeling um, healthier and feeling like, like she could do certain things that actually she was limited by physically and then therefore have better uh, social relationships and um, but, but feel it, confident. I, I, so but, I, but also, you know, I, what happens sometimes as you get into these affects, the, there are, you sort of see where the resistance is coming from. Right. And so t- talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes we hold on to certain patterns in our lives or, or um, resist things that we, we know might be better for us or we possibly could do out of for so many reasons. But many times for people, it's, it's for fear of failure. It's, I, I, it's just, it's also like change is really hard for humans. I know this it's, is the part I can't get people to understand. They, 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 there's just no public understanding of that. It, it is. And, and forget just the change, which is already incredibly hard. Sustaining change is extra oh, yes. hard. Oh my gosh, of course. And, and I think there's so many layers to that, but change in general, I just want to say for, for anyone and everyone listening, it's hard for all humans. 
it's not just like some people are better at change than others. And I'm just not going to be someone that is great with change. It's so interesting and ironic because change is something that's part of our human existence and always will be, but it's also one of the most difficult parts of human existence is, well, is it, changing. It, I think it's because we, a, a we're wired up to certainly protect against change in our habitus in our body, yes. right? That's damage. But we're wired with the exact same system to protect against change in our psyche, because the right. the self, as it's experienced, is the thing we're defending. That's the thing. That's the totality of what we are and what we're trying to sustain through time. And when something changes it, really changes it. If right. you, you well. Having gone through some deep therapy myself, you have a grief reaction. You you yes. actually so a part. It's you, you're a different yes. person. You're a different person, yes. and, and people do anything to avoid grief. Oh my god! Well, they I, I agree. And you know, I always say there there is mourning. There's always loss and change. Yep. When you think about it. Even this is what, what people don't get. Getting, they don't get right. It. Even yeah. if what you're getting is better at the end or something that will improve your life, you're still losing something. And that loss, you're so correct. People do not want to feel lost. And we're wired um, up. With, we're just wired up. We're wired to, up to, that way. Yeah, it's a, and I think with change, um, the the sort of, one of the most interesting keys with change is unless you know and you feel it and you really allow yourself to marinate in what you will get, what how your life will improve with this new thing and really know it, whatever this change might be, unless you know what that is, you have to want something so much more badly and expect it to be able to happen and really know why the why of it in order to change. Yep. Like that's the only way if you don't, if it's just something like, you know, like I don't want to, I don't want to smoke anymore because it's bad for me. Just that, like that might not be enough. Like what about not smoking will make your life better? You have to really know that and really believe it and feel it in order to make a change. And the other thing with that is, first of all, that example, it just makes me think our brain doesn't like to, to look at things in negatives. You can't necessarily say like, um, I, I want to stop smoking. It's more like I want healthy lungs or Uh I want healthy. um, That's interesting. Yeah. So it's the same thing. Like if I asked you to imagine, um, you know, eating an apple. You can imagine eating an apple, but if I asked you to imagine not eating an apple, the only way you can imagine not eating an apple is either A, to imagine a different fruit, or literally you'd have to imagine eating the apple and sort of like not eating the apple by putting it down or by putting it. So the better way is like, if I wanted you to imagine not eating an apple, I'd tell you to imagine eating an orange. Which is kind of, I've been thinking a little bit about this lately, and this is again a poorly formed thought, but you know, back when I was doing neuroscience, way back when the literally the field of study was just getting started. Um, um, By the way, why do you look exactly the same? As, like, I, as when? What's your secret? I don't know. Just like I feel like when I was in like middle school and I was listening to like my, ha- my hair is a lot grayer. Gary, help me on this. Yeah, but it makes you more handsome. You I agree with age. her completely because when I'm like a skin, like what are you doing? Deepika and I are probably about the same age and I agree. And it is much more striking in person. The man is more ripped than when we were kids and he is better well, looking. Well, the, He's the, a the more ripped is I got off carbohydrates. I just got off carbohydrates completely and it made a big, big, big difference. I, I have a metabolic syndrome and it clearly carbs are my enemy. Clearly. So that was that's one thing I've done. I've used uh, retinoic acid uh-huh. for adult acne since I was like 30. Maybe that did something. I mean, uh, your skin's pretty – I mean, I don't want to – 
get creepy here. But, like your skin's pretty amazing. I'll <laughs> get creepy. He's Unless a handsome you bastard. Some, like, and you have some sort of like zoom filter on that I don't know about. <laughs> and and literally, I know Gary might have done something. We have a very very <laughs> high end camera. And, 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 okay. And literally, this is going to sound. Uh, people are going to wonder about this, but I really do believe the NAD story is something. I've been taking this thing called True Niagen. Oh, that, Nat. Yeah, yeah. And and they they actually advertise on this network. So I'm. This is not an advertisement. This is literally my belief that there's something in that NAD system that is helping me. Because when I started that, I started hearing more of this. The, the environment started telling me that, hey, why aren't you aging? And uh, that's about when I started the pro- the NAD supplement. So I don't know. Who knows? Know. It's, not, it's, it's an anecdote of one. Um, <laughs> doesn't really prove anything, but, you know, it's my, been my thing. Um but uh, yeah, I figure I'll fall apart one day. Don't you worry. <laughs> so it's coming. It's coming soon. Um, how, but your skin will look really good. My, my skin will look perfect. Uh, I, they won't have to put any makeup on me in the casket. That's awesome. Uh, so how, how long have you been out in practice now? Um, so I have been sort of doing my optimism thing yeah, yeah. for about a decade. Okay. Um, but I don't actually over the past. Um, handful of years, I I don't see clients so much anymore. So much more of what I do is speaking and um, writing. And I have a I have a brand called Things Are Looking Up, and I have a a couple products. But the the big one is the Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards. Um, I've got a podcast called Looking Up, and I do a lot of workshops and consulting and partnerships for for companies. How do you communicate? what we've been discussing uh, in an operational way. This is going to be kind of a weird and difficult to answer question. But but I, it, hearing you speak about these uh, interventions and techniques, it occurs to me that part of the reason they work is you're an empathic person who's highly trained and can hold a frame, uh, a frame of intersubjectivity that is safe for people to have these images and things. I, I personally believe that you know bodily based attunements and mm-hmm. all non all kinds of autonomic non conscious information is going back and forth and the the frame of two people together I, I really believe is extremely important to change yes. and, and openness to experiences that a, a single skull can't can't handle. Yeah. How do you if that's true and if that's part of your technique, which I think is what I'm seeing. How do you get that across to people when you're talking to individuals or writing about it? I, I found that difficult. Uh, and what, what do you what do you tell people? Um, so, or, or do you put an emphasis on that? You know. Well, for you know when when I was seeing clients more regularly, um, and even even so before you know just this pandemic, um, I definitely feel like if I take on a client to do you know the real work in which I, I have done. Um, definitely, I feel in-person is obviously always better. And um, uh, that's a different experience. It's the one-on-one, two of you together. There's, a, I think there's a symbiotic relationship that occurs that's part of the process. Um, but for, what I, for the purposes of what I more so do now and have sort of shifted to are just disseminating and coming up with real, practical, everyday self-mastery tools that are um, all about increasing resiliency and optimism and, and okay, joy. Now, we've, we've slowly morphed into a new topic here. So let's talk about that. <laughs> T- talk to me about resiliency. Okay. So um, 
basically, uh, I think the, the whole word and notion of optimism can be really misrepresented. Um, I think a lot of people, and I've asked a lot of people, so um, I feel like what most people think of that I've asked, um, and again, that's a lot of people, of what optimism is. A lot of people have this description of you know, someone that is constantly wearing rose-colored glasses, the glass is always, you know, half full. They're sort of had this image of, of walking through like barefoot, a field of poppies, you know, skipping and singing. And they're having the perfect, I've heard that term perfect so much day, 24-7, 365. And listen, that is not, that's not human. Let's just say that, first of all. That's sounds, a little, inhumane. sounds a little boring too. Yeah, it does. It sounds boring too. And it's well, actually it, not the way it, it, in which I, you increase. Well, I was going to say, this gets back to the thing I didn't finish my thought before you asked about my skin, which yeah. was the, which was that back in those early days of neuroscience, we, we really were zeroing in on the brain and all, all across the animal kingdom that neurons were really distinguishing borders. That's really a lot of what neurons do. And if you look at our visual cortex, that's mostly what we're doing is looking at things moving from one thing to another. Mm-hmm. And we are particularly acutely aware of things that are changing, a border, mm-hmm. movement, that yeah. kind of thing. And so back to your point about uh, the perfect life, that is not perfect because our brain actually doesn't like that. Right. We, we, like, we like movement and change and things. Right. right? And, and talk about memory. That's actually we, – we learn um, when things are – the way we learn from memory, and this is a side point, not even anything, but I find it interesting. We learn sort of much better and program our memory much better when it's things that we are challenged by, right. and not just that are easy. And so basically yes. a, a, an optimist, someone that is optimistic or is you know working towards that is really the way that we define it is someone that is very aware and intentional and mindful about less than ideal situations and things that are not going their way or things that upset them. But the point is, the caveat is that they see these things as temporary and something that they have the ability to overcome, even if they don't know how. And Mm. so also this idea of optimism is, optimism is really about being able to hold a duality of emotion. So holding the emotion of being disappointed or angry or fearful or sad or whatever it might be, but at the same time, holding space and being able to have space that things may get better. And it's that idea of, uh, I can't really, I can't really define optimism without, um, using a couple other really key words. And, and the biggest key word for me is resiliency. I can't define optimism without talking about resiliency. Resiliency is this idea of, you know, working through struggle and bouncing, bouncing back from, from struggle and less than ideal situations. And we, what we find is optimism is really, really high in people that have high resiliency. And so that makes no sense to think that, you know, being positive all the time and avoiding um, or sort of looking away from things that are less than ideal and not even bringing them into your, um, your forefront um, first of all, we know through emotions and working through them, uh, that's not how we deal with emotions. If you want to deal with anxiety or fear or sadness or any of these, you really have to lean into them. Um, you can't just avoid them. And so basically, um, you know, an optimist, an optimist is someone that's resilient. And I don't believe that there is such a thing as someone that is an optimist and someone that's a pessimist. I believe that it's a continuum and in our lives through different circumstances, 
you know, parts of my life, I have worked really hard and I feel like I am now more naturally able to sort of um, look at an optimistic way. And then there's parts of my life that um, that's my real work, like medically, physical stuff, physical health. I am super pessimistic and it's my like Achilles heel and it's always my sort of what I have to work the hardest in, um, which you can imagine the uptick of anxiety um, during the pandemic time. Yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah. But um, so that's, and I think like when I define what a true optimist is and what we're really talking about, what I love so much about it is that I think it's really liberating and I see so many people's shoulders, like when I'm speaking to a big audience, kind of just relax and go down and people come up to me and say like, oh, now that I know what it what it means to be optimistic, I think I'm actually pretty optimistic and I thought I was not at all. And it's, of course, because, you know, most of the time if we're defining it as devoid of reality and, um, you know, that other way, like none of us would feel we were. And it kind of just seems like something, why would we want to be? Well, it's it's interesting. If I, if I distill down what I think I'm here you're saying is that you have to have experience persevering. And yes. experience persevering gives you a certain amount of competence, right? So yes. competency is part yes. of this too. But ultimately, to be perseverant and develop that confidence, you have to have a sense that you can work through adversity and that it is temporary. So there's a temporal exactly. component to all this. Yeah, it's interesting. Absolutely. And the big key is also you don't have to know how. You just have to know you can. You don't have to know how exactly. And just that it comes back to the Well, I would argue it's more even a a more profound thing is the leap of faith you have to take when you don't know how. And you know you don't know how, but you have to keep going. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think like for me, something that's so important right now is – I think like this, we're in this like strange wave and we have been for a while, but we're in this strange wave of this idea of toxic positivity, where I feel like we're sort of pressuring ourselves and pressuring others to, to suppress, you know, the full range of emotions and just, why can't you just be positive, just be positive or good vibes only. Um, Like there's no room for for the normal range of human emotion. And and I try to explain to people, listen, I'm an optimism doctor and I'm trying to tell you there is such a thing as toxic positivity. I love that. I love that phrase. I've never heard that phrase before of toxic. I'm like just talking all about it right now. Like I'm fully trying to educate people on the way I describe toxic positivity um, is, you know, this insincere notion of positivity that can actually lead to harm. And it's the disregard or even vilification of the normal range of human emotion. And I believe that actually stands, you know, as the opposite of validation, hope, and the recognition of resiliency. Right. And so, yeah, the best example is the good vibes only, or, or, you know, you'll get over it or just be happy. Um, It could be worse. Um, just be positive, all those things. And so, you know, there's a healthier way to support yourself and support others in that with a more sincere and truthful, empathic response that more offers like hope and support and uh, at the same exact time is, is truly acknowledging the, you know, and validating one's pain, whether it's yours or someone else's or the struggle or the fear. And I think that's so important in, in the world we're living in right now. Oh, my God, yes. It, it seems like helplessness is the counterforce against uh, resiliency, right? Helplessness? Would, would that be accurate? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and I think and, that, and let me just say that, that we have been through I, – I think we've been through a pandemic of childhood trauma. And so helplessness is pandemic. What do we do with that? Because that ends up with people 
essentially recreating the traumas of the past rather than building resiliency in the present. I think one of the, you know, what I like to focus on so much and what I'm truly passionate about is helping people develop skills for these type of things that actually are based on their own natural resources. So, uh, you know, I think we hit this wave too a few years back where wellness and this idea of self-improvement became like, I mean, let's just face it, it became inaccessible for most. It was like this weird expensive thing that only like a certain group could have access to. And really like what what we're talking about here is tools and skills that we all actually possess that either we didn't know we possessed. Give an example. We just haven't. Example. Perfect. One of the best examples for helplessness is perspective. So we all have perspective. It's part of us. I'm not saying this is easy, but it's a tool and a resource we all have as humans. And so your perspective and using perspective can literally either leave you feeling completely helpless or entirely empowered. And so an example of this can be, I'll give you two examples. One personally for myself and, and at the beginning of this whole um, pandemic, I was certainly feeling pretty claustrophobic and anxious about being home all the time. And I was, I was saying over and over, I'm stuck at home. I'm stuck at home. I'm stuck at home. And one day, of course, not being, not, not, um, you know, I was completely recognizing my privilege. Some people are not safe at home, but I started saying, but I'm actually also safe at home. And so that one shift, every time I found myself kind of saying stuck at home, I just shifted, I'm safe at home. And so that one word, even it didn't change my circumstances. I was still at home. Um, it didn't change anything around me, but it did change my mental health and it changed my mood and it actually changed the way in which I was living day to day. Um, and so that's one way. Another way is that I, I use perspective is, you know, something like stress. I think stress is such an important topic to talk about because um, what we hear and, and, you know, I talked a lot more about this on one of my episodes of the podcast. Um, I interviewed this uh, Stanford health psychologist on she's a stress researcher. And, um, you know, we were talking about this idea that stress actually is defined as the response to life. So if you define stress as a response to life, obviously, if you're living, you will experience stress. And so like just that for a second, where it was like, we, I feel like have been bombarded with believing. And a lot of it is true. I'm not saying that this is all in a continuum, but bombarding, like all I know about stress and especially learning about it from, you know, all the years of schooling and, and, and within the psych world and medically, I'm sure a lot of times too, you go to your doctor. All we know about stress is that stress kills you. Stress makes you impotent. Stress gives no, you heart I think, attacks. I think stress, stress. Is, is not so bad. Stress and so, builds you too. <laughs> so basically, like, of course, if you – and what they found, they did this incredible study, is that the people that felt that actually believed stress to be this super toxic thing that was absolutely a no-no yeah. and literally kills you, that's actually – those are the people that had um, the physical attributes, like the cardiovascular attributes and all those things that um, stress can negatively impact. But the ones that actually didn't believe that didn't have those, even though they had the same amount of stress. And so I think what's interesting is sometimes being able to look like with perspective. Yeah, yes, I, of course, it's I, on a I, continuum. I, but I, but some, I think it's, I call it reframing. You got to reframe yes, the whole thing. And, and I think stress, reframing. stress that's helpless is destructive, but stress that's and stress challenging, that's chronic. challenging right. is, is good. 
I, I kind of have to wrap things up here, but sure. I, I could talk to you. I got a lot more we could go on. We maybe we should do a whole other show to get more further <laughs> that would on. Be awesome. But but yes. there's but there I, but I you know there's something I don't know if you noticed there's something happening between us. I don't know if you're aware of this. Because I'm acutely aware of this because I was in therapy so damn long that I can always tell when I'm in a good th- with a good therapist because I start breathing with them and moving with them. We were even <laughs> yes. scratching our nose at the exact same oh moment, my God. and I was like, "Oh my god, this is weird." And and but there but that to me tells me you're a great therapist that you can really wow. attune to people and and because I, I that's that's my thank you that's my internal well, sort of thing I use to when when I'm watching even sometimes I'll be watching somebody's you know, a tape of them doing work and all of a sudden go, oh my God, I'm breathing with that woman. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I, the I, synchronicity. I, and, yeah. Yes, that, and that's, you can't discount human connection. No, and the, that's bo- the most bodies, how, what bodies do in space and with each other yes. is just there's something there that is massively important. And it's not like a, riffing. Not everyone knows how to do it and or is open to it because it, it's a very um, it's a vulnerable space, you know what I mean. Yes. But uh, congratulations, I, I know you've been and what I would love the part I was still still trying to get through and and I don't think you maybe you don't have an answer, but how you could without that piece in the equation, mm. how do you still get people to change and be open to real affect and real moments and real imagery that could be very threatening. I mean, maybe it's just sitting with a friend, you know what I mean? Yeah, communication and support. um, Yeah. You know, and then also I think one of the the best tools to walk away from all of this, literally, it sounds so simple, but but it it takes work, is self-compassion. I mean, that's something I think most of us are lacking right now um, and always, but it's this idea of of self-compassion. We are so good at, recognizing what we need to improve on or what isn't going well and, you know, what we're not so great at, but we're really, really not so great at recognizing um, just on a natural level, of course, if we work at it, which we need to, the things that we're doing a really good job at or even just emotional um, emotional cycles we go through and the emotions that we feel and they're less than ideal being kind to ourselves through it or just saying like, that's normal. You know, like it's the toxic positivity thing. Like, like, what if we had a different response to, like, at the start of this pandemic, I felt like I had hundreds of people reaching out to me being like, I am so scared. I have to admit, I'm ashamed to say it, but I'm really anxious about this pandemic. And I have read and I've seen on Instagram and I have heard that if I'm anxious, I'm going to, and I'm stressed, then I'm susceptible to the virus oh, more because my immune yeah, system's boy. going down. Yeah, boy. And that was like, it's like, we're going through a pandemic. There is a natural amount of anxiety that we have to allow ourselves to have. And I think that's a piece that we often forget that one of our greatest tools to start with is self-compassion. And it's been rough for you, right? Personally? I mean, definitely. Personally, through the anxious stuff. I'm also high risk. um, And I'm also, you know, my work... uh, increased by like tenfold at the start of the pandemic, which I'm grateful for. And it gave me a renewed sense of purpose. But I, at the I, same time, we lost childcare. I'm going to ask you um, an intrusive question. You're not, you're not, you don't have to answer, but why are you at high risk? You're young. That that takes the major risk factor away. You're not hypertensive. You're not a metabolic syndrome. You're not obese. What, even if you had, uh, what, what puts you at risk? I'll tell you. Um, I'm okay talking about it. So I, um, Oh, I'll make a very long story short. Uh, after I had my my first child, um, I found out a number of things. It was a very traumatic pregnancy and birth, and thank God he was okay and I was okay. But um, I found out that I have a blood clotting uh, 
predisposition and do you have an anti- anti- antiphospholipid syndrome yeah oh that does so, put you that puts you at real risk let me let me so yeah. i had no <laughs> idea but like a few yeah. you know months into the pandemic my hematologist called me and said do you, do you know so what it's you know, directed at is it anti-cardiolipin or what what is that what it is i think it's car- anti-cardiolipin yeah. that one's that IgG, one I, Something. That one has not been. I don't right. know actually what it is, okay. but I know what I'm. Um, it caused me to have really severe preeclampsia, and that's how I found out okay. about it. Yeah, so that's a real thing. That's, that's a real deal. Yeah. Okay. So, well, but it's not a huge. But but remember, most people got in real yeah. trouble had two or more risk factors, right? You have yes. one, so you're still pretty good. Just you yeah, should. and and I think like I, you know, for the most part, we've been. And, um, and we really know how to t- how to manage the cytokine storms and stuff now. It's so much better than than three months ago so yes yes well, and thing, things are looking up okay because I, I felt your anxiety for a second it yes, seemed pretty intense it, is. it seemed pretty it intense is. i'm uh, working on it good good I, well I, it was it. funny i watched working it with it I'm i watched it diminish it. when you got into that self-talk that you were advising for other people so that's interesting <laughs> well you know we're always better at that i always say i'm an optimism doctor but i'm not the most optimistic person i'm a human too and i'm nobody's guru um i'm just you know, I'm going through the same journey as everybody else. And I try to share really transparently um, my journey too. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Deepika. Am I getting your pronunciation correctly? Deepika. Deepika. Sorry. Deepika Chopra. Right. I hope we'll yeah. talk again soon. The yeah, website at Dr. Deepika Chopra, drdeepikachopra.com. I think people will be interested in uh, li- look, listening to Looking Up. And uh, again, that's available everywhere. And you uh, need to come on looking up. All right, let's do it. We need to do this again. Right, okay, but, you know, okay. Yeah, you're coming. Or, or you can, and you can drill into me about the stuff that I'm kind of interested in. So I can't wait. Literally, find the, the common I, ground there. We're but, absolutely getting you on looking up for right, the next right. season. Done okay. and done. And uh, yes. take care of yourself. Good luck with your. You're, you're into another pregnancy. I think you alluded to. Well, so we. I couldn't because of that. Um, I can't carry again so our surrogate is pregnant ah, perfect. and well, almost almost due congratulations and thank uh, you uh, we will talk to everyone soon and we'll see you then see you next time yeah thanks Bye-bye. bye for calling times and topics follow the show on twitter at dr drew podcast that's d-r-d-r-e-w podcast the music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the dr drew podcast now available on itunes and while you're there don't forget to rate the show the dr drew podcast is a corolla digital production and is produced by chris loxamana and gary smith for more information go to drdrew.com. all conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the dr drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.com.